I want to start, in all seriousness, I want to start a series today, a series of messages that we'll be preaching throughout uh, the month of February, and I suppose in part it is inspired by the fact that during February there is a particular day in which Hallmark rakes it in. And florists love February. And chocolate companies love February. Because it's, as Riley still says, Valentine's Day. It's, it's, you know, it's that one day. And, of course, it's all about love. It's all about that. Um, and we, we certainly don't, you know, we, we don't make light of that. We enjoy that. Uh, for that one day. I trust, though, that if you do have a mate, that you are expressing your love not just on one day of the year. Uh, and you, there is that special somebody. Maybe it is just a friend, a close friend. You're letting them know how much they mean to you throughout the year. But uh, this, this month, and it's in your bulletin, the messages that I'll be preaching um, on this series of Love Like No Other. Because more and more in the age that we're living in, we understand that the one thing that people need the most is love. Uh, when you, you look around in the world that we are living in, the whole world is just in an upheaval and in turmoil. And we know the power that there is in love, and yet so many turn to politics, they turn to hate, they turn to uh, relationships in which it's all about the physical it's not, there's no emotional uh, kind of connection. It's, it's just searching after something that is real. Something that will fill an emptiness on the inside of them. And yet when you turn to the scripture, you find the truest and most powerful definition of love that you could ever find in all of the word of God. We could go to a number of scriptures and throughout the month I'll be doing my best to touch on some of these passages uh, that are there. But today I want to preach a message entitled, A Love That Changes. So it's kind of a strange title. Because if there is anything that we know about God, it is that He is unchanging. And elsewhere in Scripture it tells us that God is love. So if He says, I am the Lord, I don't change, and He is, and part of His character, part of His nature is, I am love, then why in the world would I be talking about a love that changes? I'll get to that in just a moment. But I remember a few years ago, most of you know I'm a little bit of a computer geek. I like, I just enjoy it. I don't know that much, I suppose. I know enough to be dangerous in most cases, uh, but I do enjoy it. But mostly I kind of gear toward the, you know, I should be getting paid for saying this, Toward the, the Apple products. I, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm an Apple fanboy. And that, the bottom line is, I remember a few years ago when the iPhone was first coming out. And the slogan was, this changes everything. I don't know if you remember that. Anybody remember that? This changes everything. I thought, well, you know, it, it changed a few things, but it didn't change everything. Uh, and then I remember also waiting a few years ago, there was this this massive hype and buildup toward uh, this announced product. It was absolutely secret what it was going to be. An inventor was going to invent or had invented something 
and he was going to be revealing what his invention was, and it was going to be earth-shattering. I remember reading some of the headlines leading up to it, that it was just going to be this amazing product that would just change so many things. And I remember on the, the morning that it was revealed, I remember running to the computer almost, Running to the computer, logging onto the internet, and seeing what this product was. Does anybody remember what it was? The Segway. How many of you came to church this morning on a Segway? I know I did not. Slightly chilly for that. I, I suppose it's good for the warmer weather and, and all of that. But if you, how many of you know what the Segway is? How many of you don't, I'm, don't raise your hand. If you don't know what it is, it is this remarkable product, by the way. It's a two-wheel, self-balancing, motorized vehicle, like a scooter, only the wheels are on both sides, and you stand in it like somebody would have stood in a chariot many, many years ago. Wheels, you know, and, and there's just one axle, the two, and it's self-balancing. I remember looking at it thinking, how'd they do that? Pretty amazing stuff. Well, this remarkable product that was going to be revealed supposedly was going to change so much. I don't think they've come down enough in price for it to change everybody's lives. But certainly there is the hype of products that come along that are meant to change your life for the better. This morning as I've just delved into and want to delve into the Word of God a little bit about this topic of love. I want to talk to you about a love that changes, and I know that many of you might have in life, you might have experienced love in your life that changed over time. How many husbands and wives sit across the, the, you know, the room from one another and no longer do they sit close by, no longer do they take each other's hands and, 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 and look lovingly at each other, but instead now they, they kind of look in disgust and disdain. And, and the, the, you know, usually in, the, in a counseling session, the, it can often go in this direction. Well, something somewhere along the way changed in him or changed in her. They changed. And obviously in that setting, we know that that change was not for the better. But today I want to talk to you about a love that changes you. A love that changes you. And this is a remarkable thing about the, un the unchanging love of God is that it is a love that changes everything. If you allow the love of God to come to your life and what it is that he did for each and every one of us as Jesus died on the cross and he gave himself for you and for me. You may sit here today and you say, but I don't believe it. You don't have to believe it. All you need to know is that it is the absolute truth. Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. And somewhere along the way, that truth can come to the deepest part of your heart and minister to you when you are in the depths of a, of a state in which you feel nobody around you cares. Let's look at the word of God and see what it has to say. First of all, the first thing I want us to note about this is what kind of love was it? Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And we're going to find out that it was a demonstrative love. 
Somebody once said many years ago that love is an action word. It's not a feeling word. Certainly, if you love somebody, you fall in love with somebody, you, you have those emotions. There are emotions that are associated with it. But if you understand life, you know that there are not every day do you wake up having all of those emotions just rolled into one waiting for you every single day. But the, the kind of love that the Bible talks about does not talk about a love that is about feeling. It is always about showing. It's always about doing. It's always about action. And this is the kind of love we're talking about. Listen, it's the kind of love that will change somebody's life out on the street when you reach down and you minister to somebody who's down and out. When they're discouraged and they're down in the depths of life and you begin to reach out and you begin to give them a helping hand, that is the kind of love that can change and can make a difference. Here's the kind of love that can change each and every one of us. Romans chapter 5. And then I'm going to turn over. We're going to go over to John chapter 15. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Somebody says, I can't believe that God is a God of love. If you can't believe that God is a God of love, then you're, you're making up your theology as you go along. Man is good at that. Let's just make it up as we go along. Let's invent something new. I would rather believe what God has revealed in his inspired holy word in what it is that he has shown to us. And he says this, he says, I'm going to demonstrate my love for you. In other words, I'm not just going to say that I love you. We know that we live in an age and in a time where talk is cheap. How many of you, prom I, you know, I promise to show up at a particular time. And then you get doing something else and you're, you know, ah, no big deal. I can just blow it off. And there's somebody waiting for you and they're waiting and they're waiting and you don't show up. Ah, I got busy. We make excuses. We make excuses in every area. We know that when it comes down to it, people say things that they don't really mean. But God never says something that he does not mean. God always speaks the truth, and here's what the truth is. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now I want you to go to John chapter 15. Turn back over in the New Testament, in the Gospels, to John, the book of John chapter 15. These are the words of Jesus that I want to read to you. John chapter 15 and verse 13. The Bible says this. It says, greater love has no one than this. Think about this for a minute. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Greater love. You don't have, there is no love, Jesus is saying, greater than this kind of love. You say, well, Jesus said that, but then he went on to prove that. How did he prove it? By going to the cross. 
You could turn and we could read over in John chapter 19 or we could read in Matthew 26 and some of these places that speak about the crucifixion. And when you read it, you understand that this is somebody who is doing something, not just because he was a good man. Good men don't die for other people. Good men don't do that. There was something eternal that was at stake that was the reason Jesus died. So, well, I can think of a number of people who died for good causes, Pastor. I'm certain that you can. But none of them have changed the world like Jesus has. None of them have changed your lives like Jesus has. There isn't anybody who has ministered to your pain the way that Jesus has ministered to your pain. There isn't anybody who has made good on the fact that he could say something like, greater love has known than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And then he went on shortly after that in this very passage and says to his disciples, you're my friends. Which indicates, fellas, I'm going to give my life for you. And in fact, the Bible reveals that he gave his life for the whole world. That's the kind of love that Jesus had. One of the most powerful scriptures in all of Mark's account of the crucifixion is three little words. And they crucified him. They crucified him. Just three little words, that's it. They crucified him. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, when it all comes down to it, his love rose above the, hum the human uh, level of somewhere along the way we just kind of, we, we step back when it gets too difficult. We step back when somehow, the, the, you know, it's just too hard to love that kind of way. No, Jesus didn't do that. He proved how much he loved you and me by going to the cross. No greater love has anyone than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. It was a demonstrative love, and it was a determined love. Remember the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus was going to go to the cross, right before he was going to be betrayed by Judas. Jesus took that time. He took Peter, James, and John with him into the garden and told them, just stay here and wait for a while and pray. He says, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to pray. And Jesus, the Bible says, he went about a stone's throw away just to, to pray. And there in agony, he prayed to the Father, Father, if, if it's your will, let this cup that I'm about to drink pass from me. In other words, this, the cross that I'm about to have to deal with and all the weight of the sin of the world is going to be laid upon him who was absolutely the spotless lamb, perfect, holy, and righteous to be laid upon him. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, it's not what I will, but your will be done. And the Bible reveals to us, and I believe it's Luke that points out that in his prayer he was in such agony that he, he sweat, as it were, drops of blood that came out of him. It was just such pain and such anguish of what it was, the emotional pain that he was feeling in that moment. It seemed to almost surpass what it was that he would experience on the physical just a, a few hours later. And yet he was determined to carry out the plan of, of salvation for mankind. And as he prayed and then later on he came back and found his three disciples asleep and he went back and prayed again. And, and then we know the scene how Judas comes up and betrays him with a kiss and Jesus is taken away and there he goes away. We know that he experiences such incredible pain 
and suffering. Even as he was nailed to the cross, there were men who stood there, some of the religious leaders of the day. Imagine this, the religious group showed up. The group that said, we go to church every Sunday. We're holy, we're righteous. They stood at the cross and they made fun of him and said, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down from here? you imagine that kind of temptation? He could have. He, as the son of God, as having the power of God and being fully God and fully man at the same time, he could have. And yet he determined that the most important thing for you and me was to carry out his profession of love for mankind by staying on that cross and delivering us from something that nobody will ever be able to deliver you from but him, and that is sin. He stayed there because he looked down through centuries of time and he saw this very group gathered here this morning and he saw you and his eyes were on you and he said, I died for that one and that one and that one. I died for them. I hung on this cross so that they could have life. Thank God he died for our salvation. But Romans also reveals that he was raised for our justification. That is that God will not look at you as though you had ever sinned. He looks at you you as though you had never, ever, ever sinned. It was a determined love. As he was carrying his own cross, crumbling under the weight, he kept doing his best to take one step forward, another step forward, another step forward until he could not carry that cross anymore. He kept going up that hill He laid his hands and his feet willingly on that cross and allowed himself to be nailed. Could he have called 10,000 angels to deliver him? Absolutely. Absolutely he could have. But he chose not to because he loved you. There is no greater love. No greater love. Listen, this is the love that changes people. This is the kind of love that comes in. Look, I'm all for the times where we can minister to the physical needs of people and and try to reach out to the community and try to do our best to let people know that we care and that we're here. And You know, I remember when we did the hot dog day that we had such, you know, that was so much fun. Right? Wasn't it giving out all of those hot dogs and just, just saying, hey, we're here. We want you to know we love you. We're, 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 we want you to just understand that, that the Lord loves you. And we're giving these things out, ministering to the physical need. But you know what? In the end, it's not even the physical need that is the greatest need. It is the spiritual need of mankind. Man has to understand and know that God loves him so intently and so intensely that he would send Jesus to the cross. And Jesus loved us so much that he would keep going, even regardless of the fact that by that time he had been so badly beaten, he was almost unrecognizable. Jesus loved you with a determined love. This kind of love proves itself. Why is change necessary, though? Why is it really necessary? Well, if you, you believe some of the modern philosophies that we have, even some of the theological views that are floating around there which say that this life is all there is. Once you die, that's it. Don't worry about it. You're just going to go into the ground like a dog or like some other you know, beast of the field. You're just, that's it. You're done. No worries. Don't worry about it. 
But, you know, if you hold to that, then change is not really necessary. It's not really. Because in the end, few short years, you're here for a short period of time. My mother just turned 80 last Sunday. My, and, and, you know, I look back over life and I can remember as a boy, you know, sitting in church. My, I grew up in church. But sitting in church and, you know, doing kind of little nasty things to, you know, annoy my mother. And, you know, I'd be I, I'd just a little kid. And, you know, we had those theater t- style seats in the church where my father was a pastor. And I would somehow bend my head around, lay my head down on her lap. But instead... Instead of just kind of gently laying my head there and letting my mother, you know, kind of stroke my hair and put me to sleep while my father preached, instead I would just kind of dig my head right into her leg. Poor lady. I remember a number of years ago calling her and saying, Mom, I'm really sorry I did that. And she said, I had no clue what you're talking about. (laughs) See, that's a mother's love. She just blocks out all the junk, all the bad stuff. All the stuff's coming to my mind. I'm really sorry. But 80 years old, just turned 80. I thank God for that. She's healthy. She's strong. But, you know, my father died five years ago in the month of January, at the end of January. And I remember when he passed away, I began to think about the fact that 76 years was not a long time for a man to live. We're not here for very long. And so often we, we somehow think that, you know, it's just... This life is all there is. It's like Paul says, if, if this life, if we only have hope in this life, we are to be the most pitied of all people. But he says, we're, we don't have hope just for this life. You see, change is needed because of this one thing. There is sin in the world. Sin exists. It's just not, you know, a random bunch of choices and people breaking the laws of the land. There is a moral law that God has put upon mankind. And God has has shown us the way. Remember, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, God had spoken to Adam and Eve. He said, you can eat of every tree in the garden except this one. What's the one they go for? The one they shouldn't go for. Sin. Was, was present in the world and brought into the world when Adam and Eve sinned. And, and mankind has struggled against that thing, trying to somehow overcome. The only thing that will defeat sin is what Jesus did for us on the cross. The only thing that can fight this sin that is in the world is Jesus himself and what it is that he has done. You see, we need to be changed because of sin in our lives. You say, well, I don't have any sin. Okay? That's fine. But John wrote in 1 John that if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. (laughs) Which would indicate lying is a sin. So sorry about that. It it just somehow works that way. Sin is present in the world. It's there. And we need deliverance from it. We need a way out of it. Who's going to deliver us from this body of sin? Well, the only one who can deliver us is the one who went to the cross for you and I. He showed his love. It is a love that changes. Psalmist David writes these words. He says this, I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. I've sinned against you. David wrote those words. 
But David wrote something else that I find almost incredible that he would write it this way. But after he had sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery, and then to cover up an unwanted pregnancy, had her husband killed in the thick of battle, he sent word by Uriah's own hand from his, his palace, said, take this message to the general, give it to Joab. And, and, you know, Uriah was an honorable man. The whole way there, he doesn't open it up. He just hands it to the general, and the message was, I want you to put Uriah at the very front of the battle. And for sure he was going to be killed, and he was. And it was to cover up David's sin. And then finally, when it was brought to light what David had done, David writes Psalm 51. One of the greatest psalms of repentance, one of the greatest prayers of repentance that you can ever find in the Bible. And yet in verse 4 of Psalm 51, David writes these words. He says, against you, and he's talking about God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Why in the world wouldn't he say something, you know, send a little letter to, to Bathsheba, you know, I've sinned against you too. Well, we don't know that he didn't. But we're going with what's revealed in Scripture. So when we see what is revealed in Scripture, he says, against you and you only, why would he be concerned about what God thinks? Because in the end, God is the one who is the judge of all mankind. He is the one who has the final say. Not you, not me. We don't judge. We can't judge. We're not in that place. But God is the one. And so he can write and say, Lord, against you and you only have I done this evil in your sight. Have I done this great sin in your sight? You see, sin exists in the world. Sin is present with us. And so we need somebody to deliver us from sin. But more than sin, there is also separation from God. I want you to turn over now, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians in the New Testament, one of Paul's epistles, Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul is writing to a Gentile congregation, that is, they were not Jewish, they were not Hebrew believers, they were Gentile believers. And he's reminding them of the wonderful blessing that they have in Christ Jesus. What it is that Jesus has done for them. And he notes something that I find to be very important for us to understand how great the love of God is. Because when we understand that the, in the end, when you are in a life of sin, you are also separate from God. And we need to be changed because of our separation from God. The Bible says this, it says, Therefore remember that formerly you were you who are Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, verse 12 says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away 
have been brought near. How? Through the blood of Christ. It all points back to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is what made the difference. When he shed his blood for mankind, it brought a change. The change was man was separate from God. And now because of the fact that Jesus gave his life and he died on the cross, that blood cleanses from all sin and brings a a uniting or a reuniting between God and man. He has reconciled us to God through the blood of Christ. You were separate from God. Listen, in the end, the greatest judgment for sin will not be that man in the eternal lake of fire would in fact be feeling such excruciating pain for eternity for that, but it would be a complete and a total separation from God for all of eternity. That to me is the greatest judgment. That to me is the worst kind of thing that anybody could ever experience to be separate from God. And there are those who say, you know what, I I don't care. I want to be separated from God. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I don't want somebody who claims to be the God of the universe to tell me what to do. You can do that. God has given you a choice. He has given you the freedom of will to thumb your nose at him and say, God, I don't need you. But in the end, he will still have the final say. And the last thing you need, the last thing you will want at that point is to experience eternal separation from him. The one thing you will want in that moment is to be close to him and you won't be able to experience it. Separation from God. We need to be changed because of that. I'm just going to read this. You don't need to turn there. But in Colossians, the book of Colossians, also an epistle of Paul. The Bible says this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. that's, That's quite a change. That's a remarkable change. You were evil, and he now has the ability to present you, as Paul says it, without blemish and free from accusation. It's an amazing transformation. If you continue in your faith, established and firmed, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You need transformation. You need to be changed. I need to be changed. Why? Because of a separation from God. He said you were alienated from God and you were without hope, which indicates if you're without God, you're without hope. Look, I'm sorry. No politician can promise it to you. Because nobody can deliver it the way that Jesus can. There isn't anybody in the world who can deliver on his promise of giving true hope, eternal hope, the way that Jesus can. We need to be changed because of sin against God and separation from God. But the final thing that I want us to note is, who did it change? Who is it intended to change? Turn in your Bibles. This is such a remarkable passage of Scripture in 2 Samuel. Go to 2 Samuel 
just end up in chapter 9, I want to read one verse of Scripture from chapter 4 to tell you about somebody who is absolutely changed by the power of love. And it is this. It changed, first of all, the dead. I don't mean the physical dead. I mean the emotional and the spiritually dead. The Bible says this. There is somebody by the name of, and I'm going to introduce you to, a young man that I hope I don't have to say his name too many times because I am certain to get tongue-tied. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, David's closest friend in life. And when Saul was killed and Jonathan was killed and the whole kingdom was in an upheaval, the Bible says this in 2 Samuel 4, chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That is, that they had been killed. And now that kingdom had ended. His nurse picked him up and fled. Now, she picked him up. We know that a five-year-old could, in fact, run. But I remember my five-year-old running, my four-year-old running, and, you know, she's getting faster, but she's still not quite as fast as her older sister. So she could not keep up with, an, with a grown-up, with an adult running. So the nurse picks up Mephibosheth. The Bible says, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, go over to 2 Samuel 9. 2 Samuel 9 and verse 5. Now here we have Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, still alive, still living. Now, if David were the paranoid type, David would have contacted Mephibosheth and said, you have so many days to live. Because that's just what kings did in that time. They just got rid of everybody who was a threat. But instead, something different, remarkable, incredible happens. Chapter 9, 2 Samuel, verse 5. So King David had him brought from Lodabar. That word Lodabar, that place, literally means no pasture. Here the boy is crippled and he's living in a place that's desolate. The Bible says this in verse 6. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. Your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Instead of eliminating Saul's household, 
David's inviting this young man who is crippled. He can't help himself. He's down and out. He's down certainly on his luck. Nobody has been there to help him out. And now David promises him this one thing and says, I want you to know not only are you going to get all the land that your grandfather owned, get it back. He was the king. He owned a lot. You're going to get it all back. But also, guess what? You're going to eat at my table every single day. You're going to eat the food that the king eats. You're going to eat what I eat. And he says this, verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth thought of himself as nothing as nobody, as somebody who was down and out, as somebody who would be ignored and marginalized and somebody who would be pushed aside and that society would say, you know what, we, we don't want to have to try to deal with the Mephibosheths of the world. We, you know, somewhere along the way, something happened to him and now he's just down on his luck. Poor guy, you know, his grandfather used to be king, probably thought one day he'd be king, but now he's a big nothing and that's how he thought of himself. He he said, David, why would you even begin to think of me? I'm a dead dog. I'm a nothing. But that's the power of the love of God. God looks down at individuals who somehow think that the society has cast them aside. Nobody cares. Nobody really, really is concerned about anything that I am doing in life. And brothers and sisters, the power of the love of God is this, that he wants you to come and have a seat at the king's table and begin to know the power of his love and his grace. David is a perfect example of what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. We were down and out. We were low in life. We were cast aside and yet, and as it were, dead. And yet he brought life to us. He renewed us and gave us a hope and gave us a life. He resurrected us. He resurrected this young man. Look, he still stayed crippled the rest of his life, but he ate at the king's table. He didn't have to live in a place where there was no pasture. In fact, all of the wealth that had been Saul's now came back to him. This young man, all of a sudden, you might say, well, he, he got lucky. No, it wasn't luck. It was the love of God that was that was exuding out of David's life and David wanted to show him the powerful change that can come from the love of God. Mephibosheth was changed. Somebody else was changed. And it is the destructive. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, if you would. And there is a passage of scripture that I want to read starting at verse 2. The Bible says this. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple, that is Jesus, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. She made a bad decision. That decision, according to the law of Moses, indicated that she should be stoned. I'm not reading. I'm just letting you know what the law of Moses said. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. 
when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and rode in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. This woman had committed an act that according to the law of Moses had her death sentence waiting for her. And yet Jesus sent them all away by one simple question, one simple statement. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And it's interesting that it was the older ones who all of a sudden, you know, began to drop the rocks because they had learned enough of life to know, you know what, I'm, I'm not perfect. I have to drop my stone. And then finally, down to the younger ones realizing, well, if they're not going to throw rocks, I'm not going to throw rocks either. I'm not sure why they're dropping them, but, you know, that's the younger crowd. That's how, how they sort of think. You've got to live a little to understand a little bit more about what's going on and what's, what's really true in your heart and in your life. And they, all of a sudden they're gone. This woman is just standing there waiting for something to happen, waiting for that first rock to be thrown, waiting even for the words of condemnation to come out of Jesus' mouth. Certainly, this is the perfect, righteous, holy son of God. He's going to have some word of con, you know, uh, condemnation for her. But he simply says to her, where are those who accuse you? They're gone. Well, I'm not going to condemn you either. But here's what I want you to also remember. Go and sin no more. In other words, don't hop back into that bed again the way that you just did. Don't go back to the same mess that I'm rescuing from you from. Don't go back to the same destructive behavior, the things in your life that could be destroying you. Why would you do that when I'm giving you new hope and new life? And there are people today that need to know that the love of God can rescue them from destructive behavior, from the life of addiction, from a life of pain and sin, where they somehow just feel they got to go back. You don't have to go back to anything. There's no nothing out there for you. You can be delivered and set free by the love of God. It can change you the last one was this he delivers and changes the disillusioned this is the last what I want to close with we know the story of how Peter denied Jesus three times that night that Jesus was betrayed the Bible says and records for us that Peter followed at a distance and he didn't want to be noticed he didn't want anybody you know he he Earlier, he had confessed, Lord, I'm going to die for you. You know, Lord, I'll, I'll be, everybody else might forsake you, Jesus, but not me. All of a sudden, Jesus is being carted away with Roman soldiers, and Peter's nowhere to be found. He's hiding in the shadows, following at a distance, and he gets into the courtyard very close to Jesus. In fact, he was within eye shot of Jesus. And there, all of a sudden, somebody comes along and says, hey, I know you. You were, with, you were 
that guy in there. You were with Jesus. No, it wasn't me. I'm mistaken. Somebody else. Somebody else comes along. Peter, you're, you're one of them. You are one of them. I know. You were with Jesus. No, I wasn't with him. I don't know the man. Never met him. Don't know what's going on here. Just trying to get warm by a fire. The last little old lady comes. I know you. Your speech betrays you. You're a Galilean, just like him. You're from up in the northern region of, of, of Judea. You're, you're from up there where he came from. You're with, one, you're with him. You, you both talk the same. Got the same accent. The Bible says that he called cursings down on himself. I don't know him. And at that moment, the rooster crowed three times, just as Jesus predicted it would. And the Bible says that Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. I can imagine what that look was like. I, you, you just got to wonder in that moment what, you know, you know, I don't know if it was a, a parent to a child kind of look or in I told you so, or if it was the kind of look that just said, I know your heart, Peter, we'll talk after, you know, but you know what? That's exactly what he did. The end of the book of John records for us, and John chapter 21 records this, this conversation between Peter and between Jesus. After the resurrection had occurred and Jesus had appeared to his disciples again, they're having a little walk along the Sea of Galilee, and, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? You know, I, of all the things that Jesus could say to Peter, you know, got to learn a lesson, Peter. I'm going to teach you a lesson right now. I'm going to beat you on the head. What's the matter with you? You go and deny me. He didn't say that. He said, Peter, you love me? Oh, Lord, you, you know I love you. You know, you can see Peter groveling at this point. Lord, I love you. All right. I want you to feed my sheep. I'm not talking about literal sheep. People. All right, Lord, I'll do that. A little, a little further down the beach. Peter, you love me? Oh, yes, Lord. You know I love you. You know I do. Fine. I want you to feed my sheep. I've got a plan for you. A little further down, one more time. All of a sudden, Peter starts to get a little bit annoyed. Peter, do you love me? No, Lord, you know I love you. I mean, come on. You know, I, you know that I do. He was, he was literally annoyed. He had denied Jesus three times. Can't Jesus get a professional love out of him three times? But three times he tells him and lets him know, I've got a plan for you. You know, Peter in that moment was disillusioned. He had been disappointed at the time that he denied Jesus. He somehow thought something different is all going to play out here and something different didn't play out. But nonetheless, Jesus saw this disillusioned man and he restored him back to right relationship with him. He took him and he said, I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to give you reason to hope again. I'm going to give you reason to see that there is life that is beyond the tomb. I was put in the tomb, but I came out of the tomb. And because of that, you can have life. And now not only can you have life, I want you to give that life to other people. Because early on, remember I taught you, I told you that you're the light of the world. You're going to go and preach the gospel to all nations of the world. And Peter did do just that on the day of Pentecost. All nations collected in Jerusalem. And Peter stood up on that one day and preached to men and women from all over the world. Brothers and sisters, God is in the business of changing lives through his love. This is a love that changes. His unchanging love 
His unchanging love will change you. His unchanging love will change people if they will simply come to him and say, Lord, I need that love. I need to repent of my sin and I need you in my heart. Can we bow our heads? Close our eyes in this moment.